that talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome to Buckeye Talk. I'm Nathan Baird from Cleveland.com along with Stephen Means. Doug Maurice is off working on some other projects for much of this week. So you're going to get us today. And this is going to be a pretty basketball heavy podcast to start the week. Stephen, I got some feedback. I said yesterday when I was I was texting to our followers and said something, man, that was a fantastic game. And I got a couple of people back at me like, what do you mean a fantastic game? Ohio State lost. What's wrong with you? But it was that was a tremendous basketball game. Uh, 92-87. Michigan victory but I, I mean you can look all over Twitter you had national people who followed that game saying man this is maybe the game of the year yeah it was an awesome basketball game but people tell you what do you mean it was an ba- awesome basketball game Ohio State lost those are the Ohio State fans we know and love we love you guys Texas but yes that that was everything that you would want in a February top five matchup between teams who are supposed to be rivals I think it's not like I said, like I've written last week, and like I've said on this spot, nothing is going to replace the Ohio State football Michigan rivalry. Nothing's going to replace losing that game. But I think that was just the best consolation prize. Like that type of buildup and then that type of game where, to be honest with you, I vote in the AP poll every week. I didn't change a thing in my top four. I just not, after after about thirty five minutes into the game, I said, "Okay, whoever wins this game is going to be number three, and the loser is going to be number four. Because both of these teams clearly are NCAA tournament national title contenders. It's just somebody had to win and someone had to lose. So ninety two eighty seven was the final. Your prediction was ninety one eighty seven. It was. Like it was. That's tight. I mean, that was that's in print or well magnetic print whatever it is online the digital Digital print print, right why did you think that Michigan was going to win and what about that game kind of reinforced your expectations going in I I used the Iowa game as a template for the Michigan game and I'm going to do it again when Iowa comes to town next week and when Illinois comes the week after that I think Ohio State can score with anybody and they can score 85 points whenever they feel like they want to do that the problem is they can't keep anybody else from scoring 85 points whenever they want to and 85 points, especially in the Big Ten, that should win you a basketball game pretty comfortably, actually. That should at least be a three-possession game in the Big Ten. But because they can't get stops, there's going to be a lot of times, whether it's at the end of the season with those weekend games or when we get into the Big Ten term or the NCAA tournament, where that's exactly what the game is going to look like for Ohio State. So that's what I think fans need to prepare for. High-scoring affairs where it's going to come down to one or two possessions of who can sustain that offensive – firepower or who can just get the stops against Iowa Ohio State could sustain their offensive firepower by hitting a lot of threes at the end of the game but also they got a few stops here or there because Iowa was still hitting shots the same thing played out here except this time I mean just just assuming turnover that then leads to a foul Michigan getting four three or four offensive rebounds in a row after missed three pointers that leads to a layup stuff like that that's going to be the deciding factor in every game. And I don't think Ohio State can win every single – no team can win every game when that's how you're going to play every single night. And so I just thought I'd go with a team who maybe has a deeper array of talent or just the best player in the game. And Hunter Dickinson's the best player in that game. So I, I'll pick that team every time. We're going to talk about defense a little bit later. We're going to talk about Hunter Dickinson in particular a little bit later in, in the second segment. But for people who couldn't see the game, kind of wanted to run back through exactly what happened. and. It was a game that as I was watching it, I'm not going to say that it felt like a March game. It didn't even really in some ways feel like a Big Ten tournament game because the stakes just weren't there, I didn't think. But 
in terms of gameplay, in terms of especially the scoring level, just the elite shot making that was happening in that game, it felt like a great NCAA tournament game in that way. Not, not again, not in terms of the stakes because this wasn't loser go home, but just in terms of the way those teams performed. I looked at both of those teams, and again, even if Ohio State coming out on the losing end of it, I looked at both of those teams and said, those are both teams that can win deep in March if they score like that. It was definitely a the vibe and the intensity of it was this is the elite elite eight game between the number one and number two seed in that in that regional, and the winner gets a chance to go to the final four. That's how it felt. The shot making, the the scuffle where now all of a sudden Chris Holtman and Jawan Howard are on the floor yelling at the ref because Jawan's trying to say Dwayne Washington's own player hit him in the eye, and Chris Holtman's going here all over. But that was awesome. That was a great moment that Ohio State's definitely going to have in a highlight in a hype video next year by the time we get to Ohio State-Michigan game. But it had everything you wanted. So, yeah, it did have that feel. There was some hardware on the line, even though it was just a February game. Michigan in this game is up by, I think, three at halftime. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, as someone who's covered college basketball for a while, I'm looking at this game and I'm thinking, okay, you're, the home team is down by three and the other team just hit 10 of 13 threes in the first half, which you know is going to regress to the mean a little bit. They're not going to come out and hit 80% of their threes or whatever in the second half. So that to, just that juncture of the game seemed to me to favor Ohio State. Why didn't that ultimately end up being the case? Why couldn't Ohio State then pull ahead and get the win? I think where when you saw the, the three-point shooting drop off, because it was, they weren't going to go 20 for 26 in that game. That's just a ridiculous thing to ask anybody to do. Hunter Dickerson, that's when he picked up. That's when he scored the bulk of his points was in the second half. As a matter of fact, 16 points in the second and five rebounds in the second half in comparison to six points and four rebounds in the first half. So that's where he was able to get to work, which is why, man, this Michigan team is good because they have a team that's built the right way for who your best player is. You've got a dominant big on the outside and you've got shooters around them. So the idea is you can't double Hunter Dickerson on the inside, but at the same time, you can't oversell yourself out to guys like Livers and Brooks and you can't oversell yourself there because then you're leaving him wide open down low. And that's what happened is they, they, they were sold on doubling Hunter Dickerson in the first half, and that worked. Except Michigan, <laughs> I mean, the, the basket was an ocean for them. So it didn't matter that Hunter Dickerson couldn't get going. And in the second half, they had to kind of reset that, and all of a sudden you're overselling on these shooters and you're giving up offensive rebound after offensive rebound. And when you're not finishing off possessions and you're giving Michigan multiple chances, you're allowing them to stay in the game while also – Ohio State never really got hot. They just kind of went along. It was just D- Dwayne Washington and E.J. Liddell just played well the entire game, and then C.J. Walker had some moments as well. But Michigan, you're right. That Michigan had some points in the game where they went on runs and went up maybe three or four points. No one got up by double digits, which I think is awesome. I think the largest lead was nine. But Michigan had some runs that Ohio State had to kind of fight their way back into things. That was never really the other way. I, There was never a pull-off for Ohio State where, okay, if they win the game, this is the stretch that you point to as the reason for why they won that game. And I think that's why Michigan was ultimately able to pull some stuff out here. You've been talking about E.J. Liddell for a while, about the way he's been coming on, and I was really impressed by him. The first time I'd been able to watch him in a long stretch, I haven't watched that much Ohio State basketball this season. This was like the first one I watched from, from start to finish. Really impressed with him. But Dwayne Washington also, just a fantastic game. Is that as good as you've seen him play? And can he have that sort of game here when it counts later a month from now in the tournament? I've been watching him for three years. That's the best game I've ever seen him play in my life. 
And it's not even because he was – I mean, yes, you scored 30 points, the career high, all that stuff is great. But it was just the type of shots he was getting, his decision-making. I don't think there were a lot of times where it felt like Holtman wanted to rip his hair out watching Dwayne Washington. I know I didn't have a lot of those moments because that's the thing with him is he, he can get hot and hit these shots. He's viable to go off for 30 like this, but he's just as viable to have a night where he's two for 17 because some of the shots he takes. He was aggressive. He didn't settle for three-pointers. I mean, he's you today. He, I, he shot he shot 10 of them, but they were all good looks. And then he was also being aggressive, getting to the, getting to, into the paint, finishing at the rim, uh, finding mid-range shots. It was a full game for him and not just him pressing and pressing and pressing and trying to find – trying to be a bad shot taker. He shot good shots, and it ended in a day where he was 12 of 18. I'm hesitant to say he'll do that again. I, I 100% believe he'll have another great scoring night. That's just how he plays the game. Will he be 12 of 18 the next time he does it? I'm a little more hesitant with that because that's not the Dwayne Washington that I've known the last two, three years. So there was some talk going into this game. We touched on it, I think, in passing last week, or maybe we actually didn't talk about it on a pod. Maybe it was just in a, a meeting we were having on our staff. But what this, what this game is going to mean towards the Big Ten championship race, the regular season championship race. Obviously, Michigan took several weeks off and didn't play because of COVID issues in that state. And that has really, much as it did during football, kind of thrown a wrench in how you're figuring these. People aren't going to probably play and act in an equal amount of games. So where do these, where does that race stand after this? Obviously, Ohio State could still be in position but probably to get that double bye with a top four finish in the Big Ten. But does this kind of take them realistically out of the Big Ten championship race? Is it just down to Michigan and Illinois, or is it just down to Michigan at this point? Where do things stand? I think right now, obviously, Ohio State's, depending on what Iowa does during this week, this weekday game, they're going to be tied with Iowa for third in the Big Ten. They need Illinois salute. They need to beat Illinois for one because that gives Illinois a loss. And then they need Illinois, Illinois, Illinois. I'm getting there, guys. Give me, I promise you. They need Illinois to to lose to somebody else. And maybe it's the Michigan. They need the problem is Illinois and Michigan play each other, and Michigan has five games left. They need Michigan to go one and four in those games, where their one win is against Illinois, because then also Ohio State can beat Illinois, and then they can get a, a share of it. But they really needed to win this game on Sunday if they were going to if they were going to put themselves in position to do that, because it's one extra. It's one extra loss for Michigan, but also in a situation where maybe you're sharing, I, I think because it's only one game, Ohio State would probably have that, have the tiebreaker because they only would play once in a situation where they have the same record. So Ohio State would have the favorite there. But right now, it's, a, it's really hard to see a road where Ohio State is a regular season Big Ten champ. One of our texters actually sent me a message last week saying, doesn't it drive you crazy when Steven always pronounces the S in Illinois? I said, yes, it does. Uh, and I'm, I've been thinking about the way I was going to combat it was every time you said, every time you pronounce the S at the beginning, at the end of Illinois, I was going to leave off the S at the beginning of your name. And then it would just all even out. Like, you, would be, you would be throwing in the extra S and I would be taking one out and there'd be a balance of S's on the podcast. But I, I, I appreciate that you're trying to get there. We're going to come back after the break. We're getting into a couple of specific questions that our texters had. 614-350-3315. It's not just football. We're here to talk basketball, too. We want to hear from you. If you haven't jumped on, now is a good time as we're getting closer to the NCAA tournament. If you're a big Ohio State basketball fan and you want that connection, a good time to jump on is like maybe around the Big Ten tournament. You get those two free weeks and you get to decide if you want it to you know, stay on beyond that. So after the break, we're going to get into some of those questions here on Buckeye Talk. 
All right, we're back on Buckeye Talk, and there were a couple of questions that came out of this game that are going to get directly into, I think, some bigger themes for Ohio State this season. Here's one from Ron in Jupiter, Florida, which is where both the Cardinals and the Marlins have their spring training that is starting right now. Uh, in my opinion, this is the best offensive team we've had since 2006-2007. Odin, Conley, Cook, maybe better. However, when Michigan really needed a stop, they could get it. We couldn't ever make that critical stop. I don't have the stats, but it seemed Michigan was plus minus better. Sorry, but it seemed Michigan's plus minus was the best in the last three minutes of each half. I think Ohio State won the other 34 minutes and badly lost the other six. So I guess first question would be, do you agree with that premise, that it was more just the, those closing stretches of the halves, which a lot of coaches talk about being critical, like the, the opening couple minutes, the last couple minutes of each half being really critical. Answer that, I guess, first, and then we'll get into some defensive talk. As far as, yeah, to a, to a point, because it should have been a tie game going into the half, but then Ohio State just blows the coverage. And I think it was I think it was Brooks, uh, Eli Brooks, who just gets a wide-open layup to go up 47 to 45 going in half. That, that shouldn't happen. I mean, you, you, that, that's the best – going into halftime with a tie game, giving the way Michigan played in that first half, would have been the best possible position. Now, going down – being down two is not bad either, especially since E.J. Liddell hits a three, the mo your first offensive possession coming out the gate. But, yeah, stuff like that. That's the, the problem. It's not – it's small stuff, but enough – you have enough small stuff, it turns into big stuff. The one – play where Ohio, where Michigan gets three or four offensive rebounds. That on its own is probably not a backbreaker. But when you tie that in with on a possession before that, Michigan misses a three-pointer and Hunter Dickinson basically gets a tip-back dunk. And they had some other possessions where you tie it into all these – you tie it into Justice Swing behind the back pass because he completely forgot what the play was or whatnot. Holtman gave us an explanation for it, but it was just basically he just had a, a – his mind went blank for a second and then he fouls on the other end which instead of giving up two points now you're giving up three points all that stuff comes, starts to build up and that's when you see a loss I'm not going to say Ohio State can't get the stop at the end of the game I think in this game they were unable to get the stop because against Iowa they were able to get it to but I think yeah that's what this is why Michigan is the best team in the Big Ten and why they were on a roll before they went on that COVID break because the entire athletic program had an outbreak I, I just think it showed the hierarchy. I think Ohio State, Iowa, and Illinois are are fighting for number two in the Big Ten right now, while Michigan is the clear number one team because they can do it consistently on both sides of the floor. While with Iowa, it's 80% offense. With Ohio State, it's probably 75-80% offense. And with Illinois, it's 80, 80 to 70% Kofi Cockburn. And uh, Io, there's some, and Io, I'm not going to try to say his last name. And That's it. It's just those three teams have really good star players, especially their first and second leading scorers on the team. While Michigan, Hunter Dickinson is the best guy, but no one's averaging over 15 points a game. There's two guys averaging basically 14 and a half a game. And then players three through five can all get it done as well. They had five guys getting the double figures last night. I mean, yesterday, yesterday. only one person did that for Ohio State. I mean, two people. It was E.J. Liddell and Dwayne Washington. And then C.J. Walker came on late. But for the most part, it was just two guys who carried the scoring load. That's not the same with Michigan. But see, when I hear you kind of talk about these things, it, like, if I'm an Ohio State fan, I do not want my team compared to Iowa. That's not the – I'm sorry. It's just that is not the blueprint of a team that finishes a season strong, which Iowa never does, mm -hmm. and it's a team that succeeds in the NCAA tournament, which Iowa never does. Like, they go out and they score a lot of points, and they, they are a tough team in a lot of ways, but they don't defend and they do not win. In, in big ways late in the season. They just don't. You can't 
No Iowa fan could come here and argue that. So how much concern should Ohio State fans have that you're kind of using them in the same breath? Or do you want to maybe – Are you could you refine that statement? Do they remind you more of a team that only belongs on that tier? Or do you think – are they closer to Michigan than that? Like, do you, or, or, or that yeah. level of play? No, they're definitely closer to what – maybe 70 80% for Iowa and Ohio State isn't the best way to put it because I think some of that is a uh, philosophy. Obviously, McCaffrey, that's what he wants to do. He wants to outscore you, especially – and it works playing in this conference because most teams can't score. Holman wants a defensive-minded team. So that's where it starts. I think like he, I, he put it perfectly yesterday. He made, On the lines of, this team's not going to be an elite defensive team, but we can be better than what we were against Michigan. We can be better than what we were allowing Illinois to score 80-plus points. We can be better than what Iowa was able to put up 85. We can be better than that, which is enough. That's where their sweet spot is. It's, with Iowa, it's just, can we outscore you? With Ohio State, I think a better philosophy is our offense is probably going to carry us but our defense should be good enough that when we're in the last four minutes after that final media break, that we can get stops when we need to. And I think they've shown in times this year that they can do that. They didn't do it against Michigan, but for the most part, they've been a team who in those moments can get the stops if you ask them to get them. And I think that's why I put them in the tier as far as ranking teams in the big 10, but I do think Ohio State's ceiling is higher than Iowa's because of that. It's interesting because Chris Holtman, you know, coming with his background, it wasn't like he had a team that was going out scoring 85, 90 points a game at Butler, obviously. There was, mm-hmm. You had to find another way to win. And that's why I'm, I'm, I wonder if a game like Sunday's is one that you – when this team gets into March, when you get into the Elite Eight level, do they look back and say, oh, we were able to win this big game because of lessons we learned against Michigan? EJ Liddell was talking about, he's like, we, we can hang with anybody. We just can't give up 92 points, which is, I think, the right mindset you want to have. It, they didn't, no one came in feeling like – okay, yeah, we lost, but we were right there. It was, no, we lost, and here's exactly why we lost. Now, I think a good thing to point out is Musa Jallo wasn't playing, and obviously he's not going to bring much offensively, but in his 10 to 12 minutes that he plays a night when he does, this is a game where Musa Jallo would have played a lot. There are going to be some games where Musa Jallo probably gets a DNP. This would not have been one of them because they needed some defensive stops, and that's probably their best defensive player or at least their most consistent defensive player. And you're talking about over the course of 40 minutes, you're talking about two or three defensive stops yeah. decide a game like this. So th- that's something to keep in mind. I think it's it's both reasonable to be concerned about having given up 92 points at home to anybody. I think it's also reasonable to say that that's not a huge bridge to cross to be able to win a game like this later on in the season. From the 4-4-0, another topic that I think needs to be discussed, um, OSU being undersized killed them. Hunger, he calls him Hunger Dickinson, is going to be a big problem for teams. Now, this this is going to – first of all, I think those two sentences are potentially mutually exclusive. We're going to get to that in a second. I used to – as people know, I used to cover Purdue basketball. They were one of the suitors for Hunter Dickinson. I don't think they were a finalist but because I think I left before that whole thing was decided. But they, they were looking pretty – they were with him pretty deep in his recruitment. And I watched him in AAU ball a couple of times and was not blown away by him in AAU ball. By the way, it's funny he called him Hunger Dickinson because my my colleague Brian Newbert, who covers Purdue basketball, referred to the Hunter Dickinson recruitment as the Hunter Games, like all the teams that were like circling him to, to yeah. trade. Uh, but I saw him in AAU ball. I forget the name of the team he played for, one of like the, the D.C. area powers or Baltimore area. Same and, high school as Chase Young. Yeah, yeah, Demetha. And I, 
the you it's very difficult to watch a u ball you should know this because you oh, were yeah. probably one of the people who was the, the culprit it was very, <laughs> very difficult to watch a u ball and get any impression of how good big men are because it's not a style of play that leads that that helps big men it's just not it's an all-star like, game it's a lot of chuckers. It's yeah. a lot of people sharing time. It's it, the, the, both offensively and defensively. I think it's difficult. So I saw him, and you could tell the physical gifts that he had, but he also has kind of that weird way of running. I'm going to just say that. Like, doesn't he run kind of goofy? He doesn't and, look like he's supposed – if you just saw his physical build, he doesn't look like he's supposed to be 7'2". That's part of the problem. It's, he's built it's, weird. A little bit, but it works, man. Like, yeah. I was really <laughs> impressed with him yesterday, and it wasn't just – it's not as if he's just getting the ball down in the post and just bumping people around and dunking over people. And it's just like some kind of physically unstoppable force. The things that I was most impressed with, with him were moving away from the ball and getting himself in position there from an offensive standpoint and his passing, his passing Mm -hmm. is borderline, like astonishing from what I saw the other day. And that's, what's going to be a problem for teams. So, I think you have to almost talk about those two things separately. I think Hunter Dickinson is going to be a problem for teams is a fact and is going to be a reason why potentially Michigan could be like a national championship caliber team. Because I saw Purdue try to do this a few years ago where you've got a pivot guy in the middle who can sling the ball around. And the problem is Hunter Dickinson's better than all those guys Purdue is trying to do it with on some pretty good teams. And, but then that first – let's address the first part of that. OSU being undersized killed them. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I think they could have had some more size in the middle. I don't know that that necessarily stops Hunter Dickinson because of how good he is. So I'll adjust the size thing first because I think that has been a pressing issue all season. And I think it's just what it is at this point. There are there was a trade-off when you decided to go get some of these transfers and build the team you the way you built the team. There is a lot of size and versatility on the perimeter between Justice Suing, Seth Towns, E.J. Liddell, Musa Jallo, Justin Orange, Eugene Brown III, all these guys who are between 6'5 and 6'9. That's where your versatility and size is because all, all of those guys I just named for the most part can play at least two positions. And in Justin Sewing's case, he can play three or four, and E.J. Liddell can probably play three. Seth Towns can play three or four. Uh, pretty much every Justice Swing and Seth Towns, EJ Liddell could pretty much play any position that's not point guard. You know, can play any position, but Seth Towns and EJ Liddell can play any position that's not point guard, and Justice Swing can play any position that, that's not center, given the way this team wants to play. And so that's where the advantage is. But what you gave up in that is you don't have a an answer for these bigs in this league, whether it's Hunter Dickinson, whether it's Kofi Cockburn, whether it's Luca Garza, you don't have an answer for that. And your solution is you put a guy like Zed Key, who's a bigger body, you put him on him, and then you just double. And it's worked for most of the year. And the reason why is because Zed Key, who's only 6'8", 245 pounds, he plays more like he's 6'11", and he's 260 pounds. And so he, he, he allows you to, to match up with some of these big because he plays bigger than he is. But then also, Justice Suing is an elite-level rebounder for a wing player. He's had some 10-rebound games. He's an elite-level rebounder. So those two things allow you to play small. Michigan was the first time where you noticed that, man, this team is small. The other games, it was there, but it, was, it doesn't matter because these things are happening. Justice Sewing had a bad game, and they couldn't do anything with Hunter Dickinson. And a lot of that is because when you're shooting a lot of threes, that means it's a lot of long rebounds, which means a lot of offensive rebound opportunities – 
for a, for a team. Hunter Dickinson just was moving very well. So he was the one getting up a lot of these offensive rebounds. He had five last night. In comparison, Justice Suing had three rebounds and he had six points and he was minus 10 for the game. He was a non-factor. He can't be a non-factor if this team is going to – he's very vital to what they want to do, not necessarily as a scorer, not necessarily as a passer or as a rebounder, but just the fact that his versatility basically is he can look at a game and go, this is what we're lacking today. I'm going to do this whether it's scoring, rebounding, or playmaking, or playing defense. He did none of that on Sunday. And then Zed Key just, in his 11 minutes, he just wasn't able to slow down Hunter Dickinson. The goal isn't to stop Hunter Dickinson. You're not going to do that. Correct. He's unstoppable. The goal isn't to stop Luca Garza. The goal isn't to stop Kobe Cockburn. The goal is to make things difficult for them every single time they touch the ball or in the vicinity of the ball. They did that with Kofi Cockburn, who was 7-7 seven of seven in that game, but a lot of that came on putbacks and dump-offs. It wasn't like he was dominating in the post. Luca Garza was held 10 points under his scoring average when they played Iowa. They just didn't do that with Michigan, and it's because Justice Suing and, and Zed Key have a, had a bad game. Those two can't have a bad game if this team wants to have a deep tournament run and maybe compete for a national championship. I think the other thing to remember is the NCAA tournament is really all about matchups. As great as your team is, and and if you if there are only four or five teams out there that could really cause Ohio State a problem with their size, but Ohio State happens to play one of them in the Sweet 16 because that's how the draw goes, then that's how it goes, and that's mm-hmm. that's that's just that's what the NCAA tournament is for everybody. There's somebody out there that Michigan doesn't match up well with, and they hope that they're on the other side of the bracket from them. So that's going to cover basketball. What's up next for Ohio State basketball? They'll play Michigan State on Saturday. It's, I'm, I'm sorry, Thursday. That'll be their last road game, and it's also they need they should win that game. I know I called Penn State a no-brainer, and I mean Penn State's made it tough for everybody this year. But I never in that while I was watching that game thought Ohio State wasn't going to win it. I just think Penn State plays guys tough. This I'm not going to call it a no-brainer again because I don't want you guys texting me talking about Stephen. I thought you said it was going to be a no-brainer, but I do think that Ohio State should have 19 wins. In, overall and 13 wins in the big 10 by the time they get to iowa next sunday stay tuned for that we're taking a break here we're going to come back with some rapid fire on ohio state nfl draft talk here on buckeye talk we're back on buckeye talk to discuss some ohio state nfl draft thoughts the draft coming up starting thursday april 29th so what we're like two months and one week away from the day we're recording this here on February 22nd. So still a lot of time for Ohio State players to potentially influence their draft position. You know, go to some workouts, go to some interviews, or I guess they won't be going to them. A lot of them will be Zoomy things, uh, remote things, but still some time to help their NFL draft status. And that's kind of the topic of some of the questions we got today. So this is coming from Kevin in the 419. This year is the first since 2015 that we're only going to have one first-round pick according to mock drafts. With all the top 50 recruits Ohio State gets, shouldn't we have multiple first-round picks every year no matter what? Should there be a concern that OSU is not developing talent at an elite level or we are not identifying and recruiting the best talent? My guess is that the problem is more with coaching and development rather than recruiting and identifying talent. Thoughts? First world problems for sure, but Alabama has three plus first round picks every year for the past four years, and they're the ones we've got to beat. Is the year just a blip and nothing to worry about or a concern about the future when it comes to recruiting or coaching slash player development? Some things I want to say to kind of help set the stage for this argument or this discussion, I should say. Number one, Chris Olave pulling out of this draft pool takes away what would potentially be that second first round pick. So Ohio State had multiple, I think, 
I think people would agree that Ohio State had multiple NFL first-round picks on the 2020 roster. Just some of those guys aren't in the 2021 NFL draft. So that's mm-hmm. something to think about. Number two, not a huge difference between a late first-round pick and an early second-round pick, in my opinion. I know why people, in the, when you take a long view, you look and it, guys who are taken in the late 20s or number 30 overall, those, those are first-round picks, so they look different than the guy taken 33rd. But in terms of their actual value, to me, not a huge difference. So that's something to keep in the back of your mind. And number three, I would actually say also that the 2020 team fulfilled what we thought all along was kind of its destiny in some ways, which was that it was going to have to be better than the sum of its parts. Or, it, or you know what I'm saying? Like, we mm-hmm. knew that there weren't a lot of potentially, like, star guys, especially on the defensive side of the ball. There weren't going to be a lot of 2021 NFL draft star guys the way there were from the 2019 team with – three first round picks and and two guys in top five. We knew that that side of the ball, especially was going to be a little bit of a dip. And I felt like it kind of did that. I mean, I guess the question you would then ask yourself was whether you'd rather have this year's Ohio state draft class coming off of a national championship game appearance or Alabama's 2020 draft class coming off of not making the playoff at all. Like that's how to kind of keep that framed in your mind. So having said all of that, I do understand what Kevin's getting at here a little bit is we, we have talked about the difference in the tiers and how Ohio State still is not at that Alabama tier and is at best maybe tied with Clemson at that next tier, having now beaten Clemson. But to, in your mind, do things like NFL first-round draft picks have any bearing on the does – that, does that reflect where a team is in stature? I think it reflects the recruiting classes. I think it's the ultimate punctuation – on it I mean, as much you know emphasis as we put on recruiting rankings and they do matter but I think the ultimate rankings are the ones you do three and four years after a class has been on campus and some of those guys are off to the NFL some of those guys have had elite college football careers and some of these guys have been misses and that's just how this goes I mean Mark Bantoni said that that's how we judge our recruiting classes is on draft day and that I mean so to the point of this is going to be the one year where we're at Ohio State's not going to have multiple first-round draft picks, because they're going to have them next year. Chris Olave is probably going to be a first-rounder. Garrett Wilson will probably be a first-rounder. I don't There might be another guy who sneaks into that first round, maybe a defensive lineman, maybe Tyreek Smith. People fall in love with him again. But it, the 2018 recruiting class is a bunch of – it's a lot of misses right now. I mean, it was the number two recruiting class in the country, number one in the Big Ten, average star rating of 94.29. Nicholas Petit-Frere – came back and he probably wasn't going to be a first round pick anyway, because he played right tackle and not left tackle. And that's where the value is. Uh, Teron Vincent is the second best player in that class. Number 20 player in the country has been dealing with injuries. And so we, we probably haven't seen what the best of what his, he, he looks like, but I don't know if that's a first round draft pick. Tyreek Johnson to this point has been a miss as a cornerback, but those are three guys, a defensive lineman, a cornerback and an offensive ta- tackle where those guys are typically top 15 picks that position. None of those guys are first-rounders. And then Jalen Gill obviously has transferred. And then Tyreek Smith is probably outside of Chris Olave. That class's best chance right now of getting a first-rounder just because he plays defensive end. And Jeremy Rucker, tight ends don't typically go on the first round. And so that class has just been a miss. So it's not – when you look – when you say, oh, this is the year that there isn't going to be a multiple first-rounders, and then you look at that recruiting class, I mean, yeah, it makes sense that there's not going to be. And really, had Chris Olave not come back – 
you'd probably be saying the same thing about the 2019 recruiting class for the 2022 rec- uh, draft class is that right now there's only one guy for sure that we know is going to be a first rounder. And that's Garrett Wilson. Zach Harrison has the potential, but you know, he's still, he's got to get there. And then Harry Miller's and uh, the other five star in that class. I mean, he's an interior lineman. So even at his best, he's probably not a first rounder. So these next two years, it wouldn't be shocking if they're on a multitude. But then once you get to 2023 and that 2020 class is up, we probably get back to seeing multiple first-rounders from Ohio State. And, of course, that 2022 class as well in 2021. But, yeah, this is not a shock. And the other thing I would remind people is that, I mean, look at that 2020 draft class for Ohio State where you've got two of the top five picks. So you've got, like, a generational pass rush talent. You've got a cornerback who had had a season that rivaled anything produced by any of the good defensive backs Ohio State's had now for several years, I would say. That, you know, Akuda, I know they only had a couple of interceptions, but just what he did on the field shutting people down, I thought was that impressive. And then you had to get that third guy, you had a reach. You had yeah. a team that, that reached and got Damon Arnett. So that's kind of the other thing I would tell people is I understand where this argument's coming from. I think it's an interesting way to measure these teams and maybe try to explain the gap that still exists between Ohio state and I guess Alabama specifically, but right now, so I was looking at the pro football focus draft this morning, cause they had a two round uh, mock that just came up, I think this morning and they had, you know, Justin Fields going third overall to Atlanta, uh, Atlanta trading up and taking him third overall. And then they didn't have another Ohio state player going to white Davis at 55. And then that was the only one in the first two rounds. So I think that's what's interesting right now is that there's, it's not even that you're seeing Ohio State players projected at the top of the second round. It's, it's guys who have fallen that far to where it may be late second round before you see guys like Wyatt Davis or Sean Wade or whoever else might emerge and get into the conversation being taken that late, right? So can any of those guys play themselves up into that kind of late or that early second round conversation where, it, again, like I said before, to me, that's, it's almost equivalent to being a late first round pick if you're taken early in the second round. And another thing to point out here is the fact that a lot of those first rounders for Alabama are going to be from the 2017 class who all came back. And so what if Chase Young and Jeff Okuda and J.K. Dobbins had decided to come back? Then they'd be in the same boat as Alabama, because if you look at Alabama's 2018 recruiting class, I mean, the best guy in it ended up transferring out, and that was the number four player. But then Patrick Sertain and Jayla Waddle, those are your first rounders in that class. So it's it's one more guy than Ohio State would have had had Chris Olave decided to leave, while – you know, Najee Harris, Alex Leatherwood, Dylan Moses, Jerry, uh, Jerry Judy, obviously, and Tula were the year before. But those are where – a lot of those are 2017 guys who came back. When you put it in perspective of Alabama having multiple, I think we're talking about three – I think when they're talking about this, they're, uh, they're talking about the three-and-done guys. It's not a bunch of three-and-done guys for Alabama. Good point. It leads into our next question coming from the 419. Who will be the first – defensive Buckeye player drafted I'm not convinced it's Sean Wade and I think I might agree with that right now although I don't know it could be close I think White Davis is going to be the second Ohio State player taken I don't know how soon in the second round it seems like he might be a second round talent right now but I think he'll be the second Ohio State player off the board after Justin Fields who's going to go in the first the opening minutes of the draft then I don't know I I I, my my suspicion is Sean Wade might actually still have an edge over someone like Tommy Togiai or Pete Werner. I feel like the just positionally, there's still more demand for that, even if people don't think that he is a 
starting outside cornerback, certainly right now, or maybe even ever in the NFL, I think that there is still more demand for that defensive back spot than there is for what those other guys do. I think it's going to make them valuable NFL players for a while, but I, I, I don't know if I had to bet on it today, I think I would still pick Sean Wade as the first defensive Ohio state player taken. I'm not sold that he's not going to be a first round draft pick. Um, he's not going to be a top 10 pick. I'm so I'm not sold that he won't be a late round draft pick as a guy who to the right team can see him be a strong safety, a slot corner, an outside corner. And just because he's got some versatility to his game. And I think the late in the second round, when you do start getting into more needs, I think if the right team is up, they might take him. But he doesn't fall any lower than middle to late second round. While Tommy Togia is he's great. He had a great year, but he's not the best defensive nose tackle on the board. That's what I think we have to take it. One, he doesn't play – he's not an edge rusher, so he's not a position of demand. But also, he's not the number one or number two guy on the board for his position. So we have to keep that in mind when we're talking about Tommy Togiai. He'll be a top 100 draft pick. I think Baron Brownie will. Pete Warner, as you mentioned, he'll probably be a top 100 guy. But being top 100 and being a first or second round draft pick are not the same thing. Top 100 means anywhere but basically the last – yeah, yeah, handful of picks in the third round. While first and second draft pick, you're solidified as a as a as a top 100 pick, and I think that's where Sean Wade's, you know, gonna fall in the range of anywhere from late first round to late second round. While all these other guys are maybe third round, early third round to late second round guys. Yeah, I I agree with what you're saying about Sean Wade too, because I I think he's a guy that maybe the hate's gone a little too far. If I can steal yeah. a Matthew Berry uh, fantasy phrase that he I think there's going to be teams out there that just reconsider how they look at him right okay he proved that he's probably not a first round outside cornerback a a starting outside cornerback in the NFL and maybe he can't even grow into that because maybe that's just not the football player he is but if you're a a team that evaluates him and says like oh we think he could be a a long-time starting caliber slot cornerback nickel cornerback or even like you're saying like strong safety or that versatile spot like I still think the teams could see him just as a football player bringing a lot of value to the field now maybe that means that the upside isn't there to make him a a first round pick but I still I don't know that I see him plummeting people think are looking at him like he's going to plummet down to the third fourth round I don't know that I really see that I think he could still be a a fairly high draft pick just because of the demand that's there and because of the underlying skills that are there too I, I would, if I had to pick right now, I, I guess I would still probably bet that he could be that he'll go in the first two rounds. I kind of wish we had a normal combine this year, this year, because he's one of those guys. I think I'm interested to see what his testing numbers would have been, just given that, because I think that can help you a little bit with drafts. If if he goes in there and he runs a four four and has a great broad jump and just has a great workout at the combine and then follows that up with a great pro day. It probably helps his chances more than it does hurt him, even though they do have some of that film, especially, but he only has one year of film as an outside corner. I think the combine can maybe help him a little bit. So that, that would have been interesting guys like him, even Baron Browning, who as I've, I've become the Baron Browning truther on this pod, but I, those guys like that, who maybe don't have as many snaps at the position, I think they're going to play in the NFL felt or at least that's the position teams are looking at them as with Baron Browning maybe it's weak side linebacker with Sean Wade it's outside corner maybe this combine could help him but no he's not going to fall that low he wasn't that bad he wasn't the level of the standard that we're used to at Ohio State but he wasn't the worst cornerback in the country 
No, I mean, he was yeah, – exactly. He was not the standard that you expect from the number one cornerback at Ohio State historically. However, the pass rush was not also what you expect from an Ohio State pass rush. The number two cornerback – and I'm not saying this to slam seven banks, but the number two cornerback was also not at the same level as a Damon Arnett or on some of these other teams where you had multiple first-round picks – and actually, Seven Banks was actually pretty solid this past year. So, again, I'm not slamming him. I'm just saying that the other thing we haven't seen, yes, he didn't have great film this past year from those nine games or whatever it was. He did have really strong film, I would say, from his junior year or sophomore year, redshirt sophomore year, as the slot corner. The problem is there, not problem, but that was a great Ohio State pass rush. That was two other great cornerbacks out there for Ohio State so does that even compromise that film a little bit as you're evaluating him that he was the slot corner on this team that was loaded with talent like I feel like he's caught in the middle like which way are you at you know which argument actually holds up you're you're arguing against yourself when you start to look at it from that many angles yeah (laughs) I think we've reached the point with draft I don't know if there's any there's no Justin questions today at least today there's not but I think we've reached the point with draft talk where because it's so far away but it's the only relevant NFL thing that's coming up. We're psychoanalyzing things and looking way too deep into stuff. And Justin Fields has obviously been the the victim of it more than anybody else. But I think we're reaching that point with Sean Wade as well, where we just we've I've I've rewatched a couple of games. I'm sure you probably have at some point as well too. And you keep going, man, Sean was really bad on that snap. But he was also pretty good on this one as well. But I think the last thing in everybody's mind is Devontae Smith had two hundred plus yards in the first half and then he was sitting on the sideline in a cast. You know, we did actually get some Justin Fields questions. I didn't include them in the ones I sent you. I wasn't mm-hmm. really going to go into that because I think we're going to probably have some full Justin Fields questions. I, we should just throw in here recently, though, because we're talking about these NFL uh, mock drafts that are out there. Pretty consistently now, Trevor Lawrence is the number one overall pick pretty much across the board in all these mocks. And Zach Wilson from BYU is now slotting in as the number two quarterback awesome. every single one of these that I see pretty much along the way. And I'm seeing Justin Fields falling – as low as eight, 10, like pretty far because, and now some of that isn't even just because there's no cornerbacks, quarterbacks, I should say, going between Wilson and Fields. It's yeah. that you get past those first two. And if you're not factoring in trades, which I think would happen, and I think Fields would go higher, but if you're not factoring in trades and you start to get into a chunk of the draft where the quarterback need dissipates a little bit. So I guess just your quick take on the idea of, of Wilson surpassing fields and being the number two overall quarterback. I know neither of us watched all that much BYU football. We should probably say that up front. Yeah. Yeah. We, we didn't. I'll, 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 yeah, that's a good way to put it. With that being said, I don't see it. We didn't watch a lot of BYU. We didn't watch any BYU football unless we were sitting around the house one day and it just happened to be on, which is, Probably not because BYU was playing at 10.30 at night and we were getting home from games at 10.30 at night. We watched every game Ohio State at Justin Fields played as a starting quarterback. In person. Well, you not one in person because you were at a wedding. But every, every other game in person, I'm not seeing it. I, I think Justin is maybe the clear-cut second-best quarterback in this draft class. I mean, the arm talent is there. His, the physical attributes are there. The running ability is there. But then also, I, I mean, if you're dinging him for not being able to go through his progressions, that's a pretty normal thing for a quarterback prospect to not be able to do well who started to – I mean, that's not – Trevor Lawrence is rare, the fact that he can do all that right now. And I think that's a terrible way to view whether or not Justin Fields is a great prospect or not. And he had some – he had two bad games in 22 starts. And he actually won both of those games that he played bad in. 
anyway, I, I think Zach Wilson was great last year, but also the level of competition that Justin Fields was playing in the Big Ten and then also in playoff games is a lot higher. So, yes, the margin for error is smaller than it would be for BYU, who's playing group of five teams. So I, I just don't see it. I mean, I, I, maybe I'm missing something that a lot of these scouts are seeing because I, I don't think anything that was wrong with Justin Fields isn't something that should put a big red mark over his head of why you should take this other guy over him. Yeah, people have brought up the level of competition, and I have read things that talk up Wilson from a just from a making the NFL throws kind of thing. And the other thing you have to remember is, yes, Justin Fields was playing a higher caliber of competition. He was also playing with a higher caliber of competition. Sure. He had guys that we're thinking might be first-round receivers. He's, he had guys that we know were all-American offensive linemen that are going to go fairly high in this draft. I don't know. Uh, I do know that BYU didn't have as many of those guys out on the field with Wilson. So that's something to keep in mind as you're comparing talent levels, but that's something we're going to get into farther. I am going to be intrigued to see how that stands as we get farther into the spring, whether that kind of that scouting consensus that's out there right now holds true and whether that ultimately uh, it's going to, it would be a thing that costs Justin Fields, maybe money up front or whatever, I suppose. But in the long run, I don't know that it makes a big difference. You're, you're going to end up with a, you're going to end up in the NFL and the farther you fall in the first round, the better team you're, you're going to usually to start with. So that's yeah. something to keep in mind. And wrapping this up from the three, three Oh, and this is, I think a question right up your alley over under three and a half first round picks in the receiving room for the 2020 season. So this fall will Ohio state roster over or under three and a half first round picks among its receivers. Now, we know, as we already said on here, we're thinking Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson might both be first-round picks. So then it basically comes down to, do you believe that there are two first-round picks in the future from the group that includes Jackson Smith and Jigba, Julian Fleming, Emeka Egbuka, and who else? I guess uh, Jamison Williams, Marvin Harrison Jr., G. Scott. I don't remember who else I'm forgetting, but it's okay. it's, Cameron it's, Babb. Um, but, but really probably those first three that I mentioned are the, are the most likely candidates at this point. So Steven over under three and a half first round picks in receiving room for 2021. I'll take the over because some of these guys are so young that you can still continue to project them that way because I mean, it's going to be the Garrett Chris show again, but I think they'll get back to some level of a six man rotation because these guys are getting a normal spring and a normal year and you don't have to, you know, have your foot pedal to the metal every single game to make sure you make the playoff. I think Jackson, yes, I think so. Because at worst, his junior year, maybe he explodes because those two guys are gone. I'll say Julian, yes. I'll say Julian, yeah, because physically it's there. The talent is there in the physical, like looking at him physically, it's all there. It just needs to come together on the field. And I think it will a little bit more this year and he'll start heading in that direction. And then I'll throw, so that's what, that's four already. And then because Emeka Abuka is the number one receiver in the country, I'll throw him in there. So you think five for five they could go with those first five? I think, they, I think there are five guys right now who have the ability to be first-round draft picks. Well, I think they all have the ability to be first-round oh, picks. Oh, that will get I think there? That's a different question. Like, is, are yeah. there – will there, at the end of the day, will four or less first-round picks be taken from this group that's going to be on the field this fall? I'll take the over on the three and a half. Okay. Yeah. I would – I think I might take the under and it's not, again, uh, it's not because I don't think those guys are potentially first round caliber players. It's that I don't know how many are so sure as 
those like guys who get taken to be like a sure first round receiver. I look at like body type. I look at, it's not just production. It's, it's things that are independent of production in a way you have to produce, but you also have to be out there just doing things that wow people. There has to be a lot of times that kind of physical frame that sets you apart. We've seen that from some of the guys who have gone especially high as receivers in the first round in recent years. And none of these guys really jumps out and grabs me like that. I think they could. So I think you're going to get some guys who are going to go into that category that I was talking about before that by, by the, by the wider consensus of the scouting world have first round grades, but that there are like 40 some guys who have that grade and maybe they don't get taken to early in the second round, that sort of thing. I think there's enough of that here where someone like a, a Julian Fleming or Jackson Smith and Jigba are very productive receivers at Ohio state, but maybe don't break into that top 30, 32, whatever it is, get taken early in the second round. I think there's enough flexibility there. I would even say that for Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. I don't know that you can say absolutely for sure. Both those guys will be first round picks because last year at this time, we thought absolutely for sure. Sean Wade and white Davis seemed like no doubt first round picks and, or at least were very likely to be first round picks and might end up getting taken nowhere near the first round. So I would probably take the under, but I think that whole, I mean, that's not an indictment of how talented and how productive this room is going to be for years to come. I agree with the size thing. That's interesting, especially when it seems like every receiver they seem to be getting right now is Chris Olavic, um, command shift C, command shift V. But I, maybe, and that maybe that played a little bit of a role while Chris Olave is back for another year. But I think to that point, though, I think that would be more in Julian's flavor, favor because he is a bigger receiver. Maybe a guy, he's 6'1, but he's also built like an adult. Um, and then you got guys like G. Scott, Jaden Ballard, and Marvin Harrison Jr., who are that other build that you would look for. I just think with the way they're going to use them, the fact that it doesn't seem like there's there's a, a large chunk of guys who aren't pigeonholed into playing one receiver position, they can play two. I think that helps in that case because you come into the NFL already having that versatility to play up both inside and outside, which might help. But, yeah, I think you're right. It is a combination of all these different things, which is – but I think Chris Olave is pretty sad. I think his reputation is what it is, especially coming back another year. And we don't know what that wide receiver draft class is going to look like. But then also, I think Garrett Wilson at this point is might. We were already saying that he might be the first wide receiver taken in 2022. So I think those two are pretty set. So I think the question you're you're right is more with these younger guys who haven't really shown much. I think with both of those guys, though, in order to like, in order for me to think those are are absolute first round picks, I need this it can't just be you get to the end of the game and they have seven catches for 150 yards with a quarterback as good as Justin Fields. That to me, that doesn't tell me that they're a first round pick. What I need is what you're, yeah, I need those, I need those moments. You need those things that happen on the field where you're like, Oh man. And there need to be several of them. And I don't, we've seen that more from Garrett Wilson than we have. I would say from Chris Olave, they're different kinds of receivers um, and the way Chris Olave's is maybe a little bit more subtle, right? It's like that, that sideline catch, but with his fingertips um, against Penn state, like those sorts of things that set him apart. And that's not the same as like going up over a guy and, and making a somersault and catching it like Gary Wilson did against Clemson last year in the uh, semifinals, that sort of thing. But I think both of those guys need some of those. There are very few receivers who could have done what he just did moments. That, again, that's not me knocking those guys, but I'm saying in order to solidify yourself as like an NFL team has to go get that guy, 
those those sorts of things need to happen a little bit more. And that'll I think this year helps with that because it's not Justin Fields. It's a first time starter who might be a true freshman. And so there's that added bonus of of having that. It's we had to go sometimes the wide receiver's probably gonna have to go make a play because it's a true a first year starting quarterback who might be off sometimes, whether it's CJ Stroud, Jack Miller, Kyle McCord, the throw might not be perfect like it was with Justin Fields a lot of the times. What I will bring up though, the fifty six yard catch that Chris Olave had against Clemson. That's about as perfect a ball that you want from a 56-yard ball, but you still had to you know, reach back a little bit and make a little bit of a play on it. And that's being picky, obviously, but there's going to be a lot more balls like that or the fingertip test catch against Penn State or Garrett Wilson's catches against Clemson whether either year or Jackson's McNichigba in, in the Nebraska game. I just think because of who, who the quarterback is now, I think you're right. They need more of those moments. Well, this quarterback's going to give them more of those moments as that quarterback kind of learns on the job a little bit. Yeah, I mean, they need more of those moments for themselves, but Ohio State's going to probably need more of those moments, mm-hmm. too. I think that's a good way to look at it. That's going to wrap up today's Buckeye Talk. Come back with us for the big Wednesday edition. We have something brewing. I'm trying to get it together in time. We've been doing these, like, fun, like, drafts and, like, putting teams together, and we have another way that we're going to come at that. I wanna, I'm teasing to it, and but I, it, it's a little bit complicated, so it, it's a matter of whether or not I get it figured out today. Um, if we don't do it this Wednesday, we'll definitely do it next Wednesday. So keep that in mind. And we will be back tomorrow regardless with, with a big, deep, most likely football topic for the big Wednesday podcast. But for today, I'm Nathan Baird. He's Stephen Means. And that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.